Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Thou shalt not steal if there is a direct victim. Thou shalt not worship pop idols or follow lost prophets. Thou shalt not take the names of Johnny Cash, Joe Strummer, Johnny Harmon, Desmond Decker, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, or Sid Barrett in vain. I should not think any man over the age of 30 The pains of a child that is not their own is a paedophile Some people are just nice I should not read NME I should not stop liking a band just because they've become popular Thou shalt not question Stephen Fry I should not judge a book by its cover Thou shalt not judge Lethal Weapon by Danny Glover Thou shalt not buy Coca-Cola Thou shalt not judge a book by its cover Thou shalt not judge Lethal Weapon by Danny Glover I don't know why, but I'm sort of like tired of uh, starting these shows with that William Shatner, Henry Rollins thing. Although I love it, but I just, I need something new. All right. So uh, we have a lot of, <laughs> what was it I said during the little, we call that a billboard, the thing that runs right before the news in between, the news runs between a little something that I say and then the show starts. The thing that I say is called a billboard. And I must've said something that I don't know what, I don't know what's happening. I'm very confused, but we do we do have we have what we would consider to be a full board of calls right now. So I think it's kind of my job to kind of get through um, a bunch of them. So let's gonna we're gonna start with uh, Kari uh, from Hamden. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure, I was fully vaccinated for COVID in March and had an appointment for a booster last week that I wasn't able to keep because I contracted COVID. Now that I'm feeling much better, I want to get the word out about how effective the monoclonal antibodies infusion was for me and how important it is, if you have asthma or another condition of risk, to ask your physician to refer you early on. I myself thought that I had to wait to have serious symptoms before asking for the treatment, and by that time, there were no treatment slots available for three days. I got lucky, and someone canceled, and I didn't have to wait. And I feel quite certain the infusion kept me from being hospitalized, at which time I was told you can no longer receive the infusion. So the learning is that people at risk can ask for an appointment early, even before they have symptoms, and they can always cancel if they don't need it. I went back to my physician and told her what I thought, and she thanked me and then confessed that she had not gotten used to the idea that people who are vaccinated can still get very sick. Yeah, no, I know a number of people. First of all, uh, I'm happy you're better. We're all happy you're better. You sound better. Um, and uh, I've known a number of people who've had breakthrough infections that have been significant. You know, I mean, you can get really sick. And and yeah, the point that you're making, I think we could even sort of expand the window a little bit and say what we're facing right now, and, and we don't know yet what Omicron has for in store for us, maybe just more of the same, maybe something different. But, you know, you have this sort of complex window in which the monoclonals, and maybe even more importantly, the antivirals. I mean, these these new antivirals that are, that are coming on board um, seem to work very effectively. But you know, you got about seventy two hours uh, to get going on them, and you can't get them until you've obviously tested positive. So it's there's going to be a real burden on testing too. You you're going to need rapid testing that that's highly specific and highly sensitive, uh, so that I mean, not so highly sensitive that you get false positives, but um, 
Because, I mean, yeah, well, you've just lived through this. You know, you need to know pretty early on what you're dealing with, and they need to know that so that they can prescribe the right therapy. The monoclonals are great. It looks like these antivirals, these are going to really be something. They're really going to actually do something. But testing, super important. Got to get your test early. Never pass up an opportunity to test, as Dr. Daniel Griffin says. Uh, and they've got it's got to be rapid and it's got to work, right? Uh, all right, thanks for your call. Thanks for your call. It's all good news for you, and I'm very, very happy. But, but all very true too. Um, it's weird too because let me just take two seconds. Although we got a lot of calls, but one thing that I do is I like every once every couple of days I go over to one of the big kind of um, anti-vaccine, anti-masking, and now I might add anti-testing Facebook pages. Uh, just to see. And basically, you know, they're they're doing kind of what's happening nationally in in the the Republican critique of the Biden administration, which is that they simultaneously complain about things that are being done to ameliorate the pandemic uh, and then complain, complain also about how long the pandemic has been going. So get in the way of anything that might help and then complain about how long it's been going. Um, that seems to be the new strategy for the Connecticut Freedom Alliance or whatever they're called. And it is kind of what's going on at the at the national level in the national debate, too. All right. Uh, in fact, the Repu- some of the Republicans are now considering shutting the government down. Uh, in other words, uh, obstructing a reauthorization a resolution um, in order to force the Biden administration to withdraw uh, vaccine mandates on private industry. Um, so I'm going to say more about this if a little space opens up. But uh, let's see. I'm just going to go right down the line here. I think here's uh, uh, Oa in Southampton, Long Island. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, how you doing? I'm fine. Um, I just I tried to call a couple of times. It's amazing. You don't imagine how many people are actually calling in, so I never get on. You're on um, now. Yeah. <laughs> Two days ago, you had a show on nothing, and then a couple of days later, you, you also you tied it a little different, but it was still about the same thing. And I, I'm always amazed that because uh, you quoted a lot of experts, Darwin, uh, Einstein, and um, the fact that like there's questions that have never been answered, never will be answered to me, is the answer. I think I understand what you're saying. And I think maybe the other show, for a second, I, I was brought up short. I thought, really? We did two shows about nothing or nothingness or whatever. But I think the other one that you're, yeah. you're talking about was the one where we, we got onto the subject of consciousness. Uh, and... You know that is one of that is one of the areas where there are questions that have never been answered. I mean, there is there the biomedical argument about consciousness, which is essentially it's all biological uh, to whatever extent we can't pl- explain things. It's just because we haven't figured them out yet. That's that's the sort of uh, Patricia Churchland version of or of that kind of an argument. And then yeah, you have other people like David Chalmers saying, well, no, we actually need. To think about this differently, I mean, if the biomedical explanation doesn't work and it doesn't it doesn't seem to even come close to working, then we have to think more. You know, we have to think more broadly. So, yeah, you're right. The mysteries, the mysteries, they're the thing in a lot of ways. All right, what an interesting bunch of callers. By the way, the number is eight 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 seven two zero WNPR eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. 
I actually I should say that the show that we did about nothing, not the Seinfeld kind of nothing, but just the idea of nothingness. We actually that's a we did it a few years ago, and we we re-air it uh, periodically. But I have to be honest and say, and this is going to come up with another call. I don't really remember it very well. I would have to go back and listen to it in order to talk about it intelligently. Uh, the problem we just do a lot of these, you know. Uh, all right, here is Sandy uh, in Foster, Rhode Island. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. I'm calling because I've heard you talk recently about how you feel like you're following politics less closely than just about any time in your life. Um, and um, I'm a couple of years older than you. I'm finding the same thing going on. I'm trying to figure out what's going on and why that's the case. I'm probably I'm a couple of years older than you. I'm probably a little bit to the left of you. I say that I'm a, a Bernie Sanders, Democratic Socialist type kind of person. So, I, you know, I'm curious what more you have to say about that. I'm wondering whether you might do a whole show about it at some point. I think probably the opposite will happen. First of all, thanks for your call and thanks for uh, bringing all this up. I, I think that we're going to tilt a little bit more back toward – I mean, I think political burnout is understanding, understandable. And, and I think one of the reasons for my political burnout is that I no longer see politics – at least the most visible form of American politics as what it used to be, which is two parties with competing ideologies who are basically playing the same game, playing the same game by the same rules. Uh, and, and then the question is, you know, in every electro- election cycle, whether it's midterms or presidential, who do you like better? You know, whose ideas do you like better? Who, which, whose candidates do you like better? That's what I understand politics to be. I don't understand politics to be what they are right now in which, and, and I'm sorry if I sound partisan, I didn't used to feel as partisan as I do now, but I feel as though the Republican Party is deeply broken. Uh, this is coming up a lot for those of us in journalism. I'll actually be back teaching uh, sort of political journalism, uh, theoretical and analytical political journalism uh, in a seminar at Yale this uh, coming spring. And, and you know, I mean, you have a party that no longer, in terms of its leadership and its most visible behaviors, completely subscribes to democracy. I mean, if in fact you're, you're not going to accept election votes that you don't like, if you're going to um, be unwilling to verify election votes that you don't like, uh, if you are not, if you, if you are going to block attempts to prosecute uh, people who staged an, a violent insurrection, a violent attack on the U.S. Capitol, uh, if you see that question as essentially political, whether or not to prosecute, whether or not to fully investigate, if you are going to oppose public health measures, and I'm not saying the entire Republican Party is anti-vaccine, but they ultimately have sent collectively, you know, an anti-vaccine message, a, a message that that rejects. Uh, most scientific and public health initiatives, and they've made political something that should never be political. You know, I just, I, I feel a kind of exhaustion. Like, I, I really am quite capable of covering, you know, a political race between, you know, I don't know, I could probably cover, I can't, because I have conflicts of interest, I don't want to cover Lamont versus Claritus, if that's what the gubernatorial race come becomes. And I, I think, I, you know, I could still cover Obama versus Romney or something like that. <laughs> But this is different. This doesn't even feel like politics anymore. It just feels like this sort of weird, 
you know, broken playing field where one party has some kind of governing ideology that is trying to implement and the other party has none whatsoever. It's kind of a, a nihilistic rejection of everything and including the fundamental tenets of democracy. You can't have a baseball game if one team does not subscribe to any of the rules. Uh, and, you know, and, and you know th- that's the case with the Republican Party nationally right now. They want five outs. <laughs> and and eight strikes and two balls and you know I mean it, you can't you can't do that. So I think what we ha- are going to do on this show, Sandy, here's the end of my long-winded answer. We're going to cover that. We're going to cover like you know how we got so broken. Um, but I mean I, I you know I sort of need to come out of my hibernation a little bit. I don't know. I hope that's an answer. Um. Yeah. Could I say one more thing? Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, because that, that when you talked about weariness, um, I identified with that, and I think for me, the the biggest place of weariness is um, the fact that we we couldn't come together around COVID, that we couldn't can't come around together about taking action that could protect all of us. That has me so flummoxed that I think that might be one of the main reasons. Why I'm 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 you know I still pay attention, but I'm I'm a little bit lost about where to go next, what to do next. You know, one thing that I will say about this is that you know counter to what's happening in the party itself, and the party itself is kind of melting down internally right now. There's tremendous feuding going on within the congressional Republican caucuses, uh, with you know people really kind of hating on each other in, in pretty graphic ways. Um, but, you know, I think what's interesting is that mainstream political journalism uh, has found, I think, some really, really good Republican columnists. You know, I mean, I, I think Ross Douthat, Ross Douthat last Sunday wrote about the fact that the Republican Party has an opportunity to reframe itself in a way that would make it much more politically viable. You know, he cites Glenn Youngkin, Youngkin in uh, in Virginia as an example. You know, take a little bit of Trumpism minus the nastiness and the bullying. But a little, and the conspiracy wackiness. Take a little bit of Trumpism, you know, turn critical race theory uh, into a wedge issue, uh, and you know, some more conventional Republican principles piled on top of that, you know, and 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 you've got sort of a viable and winnable election strategy, um, and. He also says he thinks the party won't do that. <laughs> They'll probably blow it. Um, and because the party seems to hunger for, as Ross says, uh, full-on Trumpism, they, including full-on Trump himself. But they, they want a restoration. <laughs> they want full-on Trumpism with uh, all the nastiness and WWE primetime television, you know, entertainment-focused conflict, reality TV, you know, heat. Uh, that's what they want because it's, like, much more exciting and fun. I mean, government's not really supposed to be exciting and fun. Government's supposed to be really boring. Government's supposed to be really boring, so boring that people like me have to try to get you interested in it. Uh, and But that's, you know, that's no longer the aim of the party. But what I was going to say is columnists like Doubt That uh, uh, and uh, Max Boot at the Washington Post and – oh, I'm blocking her name, but she's also at the Washington Post. Uh, Jennifer Rubin, Jennifer Rubin. Um, and even Kathleen Parker and people like that. I mean I think you know, there's sort of really interesting, thoughtful – 
Republican columnists working in mainstream media, even Mona Charon writing for The Bulwark basically just went on a tear about, you know, how Dr. What a terrible candidate for Senate Dr. Oz would be. Thank you, Mona. Um, But, you know, I mean, Dr. Oz and his wackiness seems to me to be very symbolic of where a substantial amount of the Republican Party is right now. Uh, But anyway, the journalism is getting better. The commentary, I think, is getting better than it's ever been. The politicians are getting worse. All right. We're going to have to deal with this problem right now because it's making me anxious and I really I'm going to have to confess to a major memory hole. But here is Nicole from Stores. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. So this is a research project. In the last week, I've heard of a some kind of underground paper called the Hartford Planet. And when you Google this and librarians Google it, the only source material that comes up as an article by you from 1993. <laughs> um, well, that would explain why I, I don't I'm I'm going to disappoint you. I don't yeah. I don't remember anything about this. Like if I went back right. and read the article, maybe it would jog my memory a little bit. I mean, one of the problems with being for really old, there's two problems. One of them is you just don't remember things anyway. I mean, you remember all kinds of things that you shouldn't remember. And, and the other problem for me is I've really been doing this for a long time. I've written thousands of newspaper columns, like literally many thousands of newspaper columns, and, and now done thousands of public radio shows, and before that, thousands of daily, you know, AM radio shows. And my, my I just, I don't, I don't remember anything about the Harvard Planet. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I hope I'm not your last hope. No, it's actually in the Library of Congress, but maybe not every issue. My, I mean, of course, if you had any insight about it, I guess it, it was between 92 and 93, um, independently published from like a warehouse on Bartholomew Street. And it was sort of like a, I don't know, like underground comics plus like music stuff. I was just hoping, you know, by calling in that somebody else yeah let's, oh, let's yeah, i saved that yeah let's put it out there 888-720-WNPR can anybody help nicole here 888-720-9677 the hartford planet a publication also if you just know what planet hartford is on you know that might be helpful anything could be helpful uh, all right, I'm going to keep going here. These are good calls, you know. Anyway, the number 888-720-WNPR. Here's Scott in his car, or or maybe not. Hi, Scott. No, no, still in the car. Colin. Okay, still okay. In the car. Um, so you were talking about cognition. I love that show. Anytime you're bringing up Oliver Sacks, you're going to a great place with me. Mm-hmm. But uh, quite recently, the nation of Britain has declared seafood, shellfish, crustaceans to be sentient creatures. And I think this weighs heavily on the um, on the conversation about cognition. Yes, uh, although... If a clam is capable, then shouldn't we be talking about it more? Um, yeah, although um, I think it might just be lobsters, octopus, and crabs, um, which is also my favorite song from Oliver. Lobsters, octopus, and crabs. Uh, but uh, I think it's just, I think those are the ones that are sentient. I'm not sure the clams made it in this time. <laughs> but, but, you know, yeah, I think it's really interesting anyway. I mean, look, long before my octopus teacher or whatever that thing is called, we did a show about octopuses with uh, um, uh, the science writer S.I. Montgomery, who just, S.I. Montgomery, who just been, finished 
uh, a book about it and and Betsy Kaplan produced the show. And by the end of it, I could never eat octopus again. I mean, there's just no way, you know. And I love grilled octopus. I love, you know, lulas grilladas. Uh, and, you know, it just just like one of my favorite things or like the Greek version of the kind of marinated grilled octopus. So good. But now it'd be like eating, you know, I don't know, a cat or something. Except that I thought octopuses might even be nicer than cats. So I don't know. One thing I would ask you about, Scott, since you're obviously a very thoughtful person. Do we privilege intelligence too much? Like, you know, is it sort of like, well, this thing is smart, so I better not eat it. You know, I mean, is there – I do that, you know. But, I mean, it doesn't really make any sense, right? I mean, that's not really how we think about, I don't know, humanity. I'm probably not the right person to ask because I've been trying to crack my way into Mensa since I was about 10. <laughs> so um, I, I don't think we value it nearly enough. But, um, but it's an interesting question. It's very cognitive. Yeah. Pigs are really, really smart. People don't hesitate to eat. I think if you're smart and kind of cute, you know, if you're an animal and you don't want to get think, eaten. I think the cuteness is uh, overly weighted. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Definitely. Because pigs, pigs are really smart. Pigs, by some measures, are smarter than dogs or cats. But people eat them because they're disgusting. I mean, like they live disgusting lives. Um, babe notwithstanding. All right. Uh, Got to go over to – I don't think I've ever gotten so many calls done – in the, in the first segment of the show. Tom, you will be the last caller of this particular segment. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, oh, oh, no, yeah, no, it's distracted. But, oh, um, I'll, can I bring him down in a little while? Yeah, you can bring him down. Hold on. I think, Tom, I, <laughs> I think you're doing something else. I don't really know what it was. But I thought it, I would be affirming and say, yeah, you could definitely bring them down. All right. I'm going to put you on hold. We're going to take a break. We needed to do that anyway. And that's all. Uh, we will be back. I like to play baseball. I like to go swimming. We like to watch movies with pretty women. We like to eat pizza, play ping pong too, but we don't like to paint the house, scrub the floor, do you? We like to have lots of fun and sing these songs for you. We like to play records and ride Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. And we are back. 
uh, and um, and what it is too. So uh, we're taking phone calls here. The number is 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. People are calling up about all sorts of things. Uh, and I'm just going to go back to the calls here. I mean, I could, I've got all kinds of things that I'm I'd be happy to talk about. Oh, I do want to say one thing, which is because this just comes up when we do this. If you have questions about the show itself or what it is that we're doing or uh, I don't know, that's another legitimate field of inquiry. I mean, I don't want to spend the whole show talking about that. But if, you know, say one or two people called in, 888-720-9677. I say that especially because we had our first real rebranding meeting yesterday and it was very interesting. Starting January 1st, we're going to be just hunting and fishing will be our main focus and maybe some maritime law and sea chanties. Uh, but that'll be about it. Uh, this whole show will just be about that. Uh, but anyway, let's go back to the – we're going to go back to Tom. Uh, when we last left Tom, he was in Naugatuck. There was some kind of situation developing where there was some question about whether he could bring things down. Uh, and we are re- rejoining Tom now in progress. Hi, Tom. Oh hi! Oh, I'm 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 sorry about that, but yeah, all all good in the world. I just well, not you know, Stephen Sondheim died, and um, that uh, I I I really loved that guy. Um, his music was really important to me, and uh, I've got a Stephen Sondheim story, which is you know, uh, can, can I tell my Stephen Sondheim story? Why not? Yeah. Okay. So he was at Trinity College talking one time, and um, I had an old girlfriend that she she knew I loved Stephen Sondheim. She bought me the ticket. I I wasn't even living in Hartford at the time, but yeah. So I went there, and um, I decided that you know maybe if I look for his look, I can get a picture with it. So I go in the back, and I'm looking, going, oh, there's too many people back there. You know, they're you know they're all going to get shacked. So I, I hid behind a tree, and everybody got shacked. And I like had my back, and I I, I, I I tell you, people were looking around, and I was just right behind the tree, and I came back, and I got a I got an arm and arm picture with Stephen Sondheim. Nobody has that, and he signed it later for me. Wow! So you were someone in a tree, basically. Yeah, I was someone behind a tree. <laughs> yeah, close, close enough. Close enough. That's a, yeah, that, that's a, that's a, funny that, you know, if you want something, that's the way I look at it. If you want something, like I've never done that before since. If you want something bad enough, you do something that's outside your comfort zone. Absolutely. You know? I, I think that's a wonderful philosophy that can carry over to so many walks of life until, of course, you get arrested. Uh, I mean, not for that, but if you want something bad enough, you should move outside your comfort zone. Be prepared to go outside your comfort zone, whatever it was you just said. That was great. I mean, you know, I think <laughs> I actually don't think it's a workable life philosophy. I'm kind of, I'm kind of kidding, uh, but I also understand the point that he's making. All right, so eight 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 seven two zero WNPR. That's eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. That's the number to call. There's no guest here, just you, me, whatever you decide. Oh, Jonathan McPants, who's producing this episode and screening calls, wants me to point out that we decided yesterday. So this show has been on the air since September 1st, 2009, something like that. And, um, and that we decided at the rebranding meeting yesterday that we never had been branded. We had no brand. And so this was a – we're not actually involved in a rebranding. We're involved in a branding. This whole – that kind of just sounds like so some kind of cattleman western every time I say things like that. But, um, but anyway, that's – 
Take that for what it's worth. All right, I have to move on. Uh, 888-720-WNPR. Let me go to Brett in Newington. Hi, Brett. You're on the air. Hey, happy 12 years and 12 weeks anniversary. <laughs> Good math. Um, uh, yeah, roughly. Um, octopus teacher. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent um, documentary or, or interaction that was recorded. Yeah. And it, it brings up some, infor- um, some useful information on just how much time and dedication it takes to establish a good, strong relationship with someone who doesn't trust you. Whether that's so, an octopus or guys, a person. We yeah. can learn from that. Yeah. So, <laughs> but um, speaking about guys learning from something, I was listening to the Supremes this morning. No, not the band, the, uh, the justices. And they were talking about things... Well, a majority of them were talking about things that mm, they should have a much less um, amount of input. I don't know how, how many of the justices are female, but I think they should have a predominant weight to their opinion um, versus, you know, like, because guys, we have like, what, at most 20 hours of input in this, and they have at least six months before viability. So, you know, do the math on there. The the female justice should probably get about a hundred to one vote over the males. So you're saying on, you're saying to the male justices, stop in the name of love. Uh, I'm just sort of working on, you know, carrying your own yeah, joke forward. There you go. I, I would like to point out that... that song, good connection. That's yeah. a great callback. One, 100% of the Supremes were female. I'd also like to point that out. Yeah, oh, I yeah. mean, I don't, think that, I, don't, I don't think it really works that way. I mean, let me just say a couple of things about the Supreme Court this morning. Um, first of all, you can't judge anything by... You know, first of all, you can't hurry love. That's I want to make that point emphatically. Uh, but you can't judge anything by interrogatories. Um routinely justices ask questions that don't represent their actual thinking. In fact, that often will represent a line of inquiry that they hope they can discredit, but they want to know, they want to know more about it. They want to know what the argument is. So, I mean, it, you know, looking at Kavanaugh, who's probably the most interesting person in this whole theater there, you know, you, you don't necessarily know what he's going to do. I mean, apparently, and I didn't listen to every word of this, it seemed as though he might be willing to uphold the, the Mississippi law. But you don't really know from interrogatories. It's a huge mistake. Uh, and the other thing is that, you know, I mean, nominally anyway, and, and, and so much of what gets explored in an interrogatory like this one is on what basis can you overturn exist, you know, like a 50-year-old existing precedent? You know, there's a thing called stare decisis, this idea that these things stand unless there's some real compelling cause to change them. Now, the compelling cause could be, as Roberts, I think, dangled today, viability, changing thoughts about viability, changing understanding, changing knowledge about viability. Um, but so anyway, I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's risky to listen to an interrogatory and then think you know what's going to happen. Uh, all right. Here's Terry from Stanford. Hi. You're on the air. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, I, I, am I on the line? 
You are on the line. You are on the air. Thank you. So thousands okay, and thousands of people are listening call. to you. Okay, yeah, sure. Thank you for taking my call. Following up on your comments about Trump and the GOP, I'm looking ahead to the 2022 and 24 elections, and I am looking for references, that is, websites, books, etc., which chronicled Trump's many illegal or borderline illegal uh, anti-democratic activities, because I think we have to be prepared for a lot of uh, competing narratives between facts and alternate facts and that sort of thing. And I really think we need to speak from, um, you know, a knowledgeable base of information. And I remember you have interviewed over the years many people who um, really knew a, a great deal about this. Do you know of any particular websites that you would recommend or mm. books? I, I, it might be a little bit early for the books. Uh, some of the there's a whole spate of books coming out right now, including the one by Woodward and Costa, for example, uh, about uh, sort of the kind of election meltdown, the attempt to discredit the results, uh, and then the ultimate riot that ensued from it. Uh, but I think I mean every day brings something new. Right now, it looks like Mark Meadows, his last. Uh, uh, chief of Staff, has a book coming out, some of which has been leaked to, I think, The Guardian, in which, among other things, uh, Meadows, his chief of staff, reveals that prior to his debate, his October 2nd debate with Joe Biden, he'd already tested positive for COVID. He'd had a positive test and a negative test. He didn't disclose either one of them. Uh, and um, now The Washington Post is trying to set up a timeline to figure all this stuff out. But basically, you know, he... Having tested, I mean, and and to be clear, he did get really sick right after that debate. That that's when he almost immediately after that debate, he started to get sick. And at the time, there were questions like, is it possible that he walked into a debate with Joe Biden, who's even older than Trump is, uh, with a COVID infection? So um, you know, like every day brings some new disclosure. Uh, and and I mean, the other thing is. Right now, I mean, the work of the Senate committee uh, is not done, uh, and it does appear that increasingly they'll do as they did with Steve Bannon. They are going to be citing people for contempt. Trump is doing everything in his power to keep some of the people who know a lot about how the riot came about from testifying or sharing the information they have. So, you know, I mean, that whole thing has to play out, too. I think, you know, there there's no way to write a definitive book about this right now because not all the information is on the table. Once that inquiry plays itself out, I, I think you'll know a lot more. Well, uh, I was wondering, um, do you know of any websites that um, particularly chronicled day by day what he was doing? Because it's very hard to go back and recall all of the many travesties <laughs> that were visited upon the country. Do you know of any chronicling websites? Like just a sort of a day-by-day timeline thing? No, I'm not I'm not even sure that that would be the most effective way to try to understand this. Although if you've got the time, most people don't have the time uh, to review, you know, every day of a four-year presidency. Um, one, one thing that I would suggest, it's not a perfect solution, but and it doesn't cover the attempt to discredit the election results. It doesn't cover the riot and stuff, but we really liked... Uh, Carlos Lozada's book, which I think is called what were, what were We Thinking? What Were They Thinking? Something like that. Lozada, who's the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, book critic for the Washington Post, read as, m- as many Trump books as any human being possibly could. I can't remember how many of them, but he attempted to read every Trump book w- that was available. His book is called What Were We Thinking? So, And that's a nice sort of summary of what was out there at a given moment. 
Um, but but Carlos's book itself came out, you know, a few years ago. So I mean, it's not going to have everything. Uh, or I don't know, eighteen months ago. I don't know when it came out. I'm I'm guessing. All right, uh, we're going to take one more call, and then we're going to we're going to take a break, and we're going to reset, and we're going to come back. And our last call of this segment. By the way, the number if you want to call in, and we now have a lot of open lines available. So if you were frustrated or thwarted earlier, uh, you can now call 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. And you will decide what we are going to talk about. Uh, here's Joe in New Haven. Hi, Joe. Hey, Colin. How you doing? Okay. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm suffering from um, an earworm that you planted in my brain six years ago. Uh-oh. Yeah, and, and um, sorry it's taken me this long to call, but I've suffered more with it than you have. Okay. <laughs> so at one point, um, before COVID and before Trump, at the end of Obama's um, presidency, I believe it was Merrick Garland that he appointed to the Supreme Court, but or nominated. Nominated, yeah. But but they didn't they didn't pick it up. Right. The Supreme Court didn't pick it up. Well, Mitch, Mitch, McCon- and, Mitch McConnell refused to allow the nomination to be heard. Exactly. Yeah. But here's what you said to that, and it really kind of caught my imagination. You said, I believe, something to the effect that because they didn't even discuss it they had turned their backs on their responsibility and Obama should just nominate him. Yeah. Or just, just appoint him. Yeah. Just appoint him. Yeah. But I never heard any follow up uh, from you. I've never heard it in the media writ large, read anything about it. Um, Do you have any further explanation as to why it wasn't tried? No, I I don't. I'd have to go back and do a little bit more uh, reading to kind of refresh my memory of the whole scenario and what the rules and possibilities are. There are, you know, obviously interim appointments. I don't know that you can do an interim appointment of a Supreme Court uh, justice, but but it it did seem at the time. I mean, I, I actually chart the breakdown this the the sort of newly significant uh, paradigm changing breakdown of American democracy right right at that moment when McConnell refused to call that nomination um, it, he was essentially violating a whole set of procedures uh, that had existed for a really long time that relied on everybody kind of playing by the same rules everybody cooperating in more or less the same way uh, relied on the understanding that presidents have the right to nominate Supreme Court justices and have those nominations heard uh, in the normal formal setting uh, and, and that barring some kind of gigantic galactic defect, they should get their appointees confirmed. Uh, and that all went out the window. And I think since then, I mean, that's all pre-Trump, but I think that was the beginning uh, to, of the, the end that we're living through right now. So, And maybe we need a different system, too. I, I don't know. I sort of feel like the way that we get Supreme Court justices, it's a little bit like what Churchill said about democracy. It's a re- really bad system, except for it's better than all the other ones. I'm sure Churchill said it better than that. <laughs> but, uh, it's, a, it's a terrible system until you consider all the alternatives. All right. We'll go. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk to Bill. We'll talk to George. Ideally, we'll talk to people who are women and have women's names. Of course, George could be like George Sand or something. So you never know.
We are back. Uh, special thanks to Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer. She is getting things done here, as she usually does. Jonathan McPants is in the call screening room calling uh, screening calls and calling screens, too. He's called up a number of screens. Uh, and uh, what else do I have to say? That's about it. Well, I can actually mention, if you're listening here on Wednesday, and obviously podcast listeners, who knows when you're listening or what you're doing. Uh, but I should tell you, tomorrow's show is about the supply chain. It's Lily Tyson's supply chain show. I think this is going to be really interesting. And I don't, I'm coming into this, you know, less knowledgeable even than I am about many things. Uh, on Friday, the news, uh, we're going to talk about the Beatles Get Back, the Peter Jackson seven and a half hour, three part recording session documentary. Uh, and we're not sure about Monday, maybe an Omicron show. We're not sure. Uh, and then on Tuesday, I still don't believe this is happening. But on Tuesday, it seems as though I will be interviewing Joe Lieberman, which has has not happened since 2006. 06, is that when that was? Um, And the last time we tried to talk together on the air, it went so badly it made national news. So I'm very impressed and, and somewhat apprehensive about the idea that he's got a book out. People who have a book out, they'll talk to Satan. Uh, <laughs> now, I think Joe Lieberman and I have differing opinions about which one of us is Satan. But anyway, it, that's, that is the plan for Tuesday. All right. So now you know. And we have some calls here. The number 888-720-WNPR. You're allowed to bring up anything. It doesn't have to be about politics or news. or You can bring about up anything that's in your soul. 888-720-9677. Let's go to George in West Haven. Hi, George. Uh, Colin, good mo- uh, good afternoon. I don't know if you know about Heather Cox Richardson. Uh, she wrote a fascinating book called How the South Won the Civil War. And I think if there's any book that anybody wants to read and needs to read about what's going on politically right now, that's the book. Um, she's absolutely fascinating. She has a, uh, I don't know. A newsletter. She has a newsletter. She's, for, I, I'll cut you short a little bit and say she has been on the show um, as a guest. Uh, but the show that she was on was about newsletters. And her newsletter, which I believe is called Letters from an American, I'm going to say, uh, is, first of all, it's just an incredible phenomenon even within the world of newsletters. Uh, it you know was one of the really, as newsletters became an increasing publishing slash journalism phenomenon, she was, you know, really the first big breakout star. You know, there a lot of it was people who were already famous in other ways, like Andrew Sullivan or Matt Taibbi moving over into the, leaving what they were doing and moving into the newsletter format. But nobody, I mean, except for you, who re- you've read her book, but like people hadn't really heard of her. And then suddenly she, I don't know how many million subscribers she has, but she's got a lot and, and it tends to be, continues to be vital. And she's one of those people who, you know, I mean, a couple of days a week or one day a week, she'll just sort of be exhausted and just put up a picture of maritime Maine or something. But the rest of the time she's pumping these things out, you know, every day, long essays at two o'clock in the morning or something. And and she's terrific. So, yeah. No, we know all about Heather Cox Richardson. Maybe we'll re-air that newsletter show at some point because it was a good show and it's still relevant. Um, if you're looking for other newsletters, I mean, that's the thing, though. My newsletter tastes change all the time. I think if I were going to do that show again, I would have a slightly different group of guests, although I would still have Heather Cox Richardson, of course. But one one person I think we had on that show 
is the guy who does The Tangle. Uh, and I really recommend, if you're trying to sort of understand, uh, I mean, to, to me, the test of so much journalism, particularly political journalism, is can I get a grasp of what's going on? How good a grasp of what's going on do I get if I access this particular television news show or television commentary show or radio show or newspaper or magazine or newsletter. And I do think there's a newsletter called The Tangle. And I think the guy who puts it out is named Isaac Saul, but don't hold me to that. Uh, although I think he was also on our show. And that's a really good one. Like what are the things he, he does with every issue he covers? And it's a daily newsletter. Uh, I think probably just weekday newsletter. But uh, he... I mean, he, he sort of says, here's what the right says. Here's what the left says. Here's what I think. Uh, and, and it's very reasoned. And he just gives you a very, very good picture uh, of how the debate's unfolding without cheating you out of one side or the other. So I don't know. Newsletters are great, though. I, I tend to subscribe to more of them than I can possibly read, but they are great. Uh, all right. Here's Bill from Hartford. You're on the air. Am I actually talking to the great... Colin McEnroe? No, just some idiot who has a radio show. Good. This, this is a first for me. I've never, ever, ever, ever been able to get through. But anyways, you know, that's that's why you said no one was calling, so I called you. I'm driving, which I shouldn't be doing, mm. and, and talking at the same time, but I can, I can handle both. Mm. And, you, and you never wanted to interview me when my book came out, but that's another story. Look, this is what I'd like. And then when I caught, got caught connected, I said, well, what am I going to ask you? Because I didn't have anything in, in mind. But <laughs> I... I just looked at my phone right before driving, and I saw that the Epstein uh, Jezzeline's, uh facilitator is uh, in trial. And a 14-year-old at the time claims that she was brought to uh, Donald Trump. And that's all I saw. So have you heard or read any more about this? This is, this is breaking as, as I'm talking to you, but I just haven't had a chance to uh, thoroughly read any, any, uh, no, I mean, I, I, I know that the trial is happening and I was trying to keep an eye on it and 16 other things that were happening as we got ready. I will recommend it. There's a pretty interesting piece, again, in the Washington Post uh, about her uh, and uh, Elizabeth Holmes, both of whom are on trial for very, very different things. I think the title of the piece is Women Can Be Evil Too or something like that. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I think this is one of a number of criminal actions, criminal prosecutions, criminal trials that are a source of great concern to Donald Trump and the people who follow him. Some of those criminal actions specifically involve him or target uh, his, uh, his commercial organization. But then there are trials like this one where, yeah, there could be sort of some residual um, problems if, if testimony like that were to come out and were to hold up and were impossible to discredit. Uh, there's a, a lot of X factors there. So, yeah, I mean, you know, stay tuned to that. But I don't want to comment. I mean, first of all, let me just say one thing because I, I do have a, a minute or so here. What are the things that we do a lot uh, in especially on shows like Colin shows or things like that, but just in general as people. There's maybe more of a rush to judgment than there ever has been before. I mean, we've always been kind of inclined towards that. That's why we have an idiom like rush to judgment. But um, when a trial's unfolding, um, the information that comes out of the trial, first of all, to extract it from its context can be misleading. Uh, and, you know, when the Rittenhouse verdict landed, obviously um, just 
in terms of my value set. Uh, well, I was not happy to hear that. Uh, but I was not one of the people, even informally or privately, saying, well, it's a racist jury or something like that. The truth is, when a trial comes to an end, if you haven't sat there and covered the trial, you have no idea whether it's a good verdict or not. Uh, I mean, it's it's almost impossible to know that because the, the, the a trial is an attempt to apply a set of rules, parentheses, laws, close parentheses, on a set of facts. Uh, it, it isn't a value proposition. Uh, and as a result, um, I mean, to, to sort of you know read some coverage of it and try to get somewhat familiar with the facts of the case and what got said at trial and then see the verdict and, and render an opinion about that. It's you're usually you usually don't have as much information as you would need. You know, you really would have to see the entire trial and see. I mean, sometimes, you know, I, I don't I to this day couldn't tell you. Maybe the prosecution didn't do as good a job as it could have done against Rittenhouse. Maybe they also and it's also all predicated on, in this case, the laws of a state, too. I mean, Wisconsin's laws are not something that we necessarily have a basic familiarity with. Uh, and their understanding, their legal understanding uh, encoded in statute of self-defense is kind of maybe different from ours and stuff. So I don't know. I'm always very, very reluctant to look at a trial. I mean, I, yeah, I think the OJ trial might be the big exception because everybody was watching that all the time. But, um, but for the most part, eh. So I'm just saying at the end... Uh, we got a tweet from somebody recommending a newsletter called WTF just happened today as a somewhat comprehensive resource for Trump misdeeds. So that uh, perhaps might satisfy the woman who wanted to know more about that. All right. So thank you for listening today. I dare not take another caller. The show is almost over. Thanks. Thanks to you for listening every day and any day. Tell your friends we are available on any podcast platform. If you know somebody who lives someplace other than around here, who might enjoy the show. We love that. Uh, and so all podcast uh, platforms carry the Colin McEnroe show. Uh, so tell your friends. Tell your friends who live in other places. We would love to introduce them to some of the work that we do. Uh, and thanks once again to Cat Pastor, to Jonathan McPants, and to everybody out there listening. We'll be back with another show on another day. has been disconnected.